a question that's often a really emotive one, but also a legal one. What punishment do those who commit mass murder in this country deserve? And what is allowable under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms? It's a complex question. And today, the Supreme Court of Canada actually delivered a unanimous ruling on the very issue. It found the life sentence with no eligibility for parole for 40 years, given the Quebec City mosque attacker who killed six Muslim men, Alexander Bissonnette, violates the ban on, quote, cruel and unusual punishment in the Charter. Now, obviously, it's hard to feel, impossible to feel, any sympathy for Alexandre Bissonnette, who shot and killed those men in a racist, hate-filled slaughter. But this isn't really about what punishment he deserves. His sentence stays the same, life. Still, at the Islamic Cultural Center of Quebec, disappointment. Mohamed Labdi, the mosque's president, spoke of the families of the dead now worrying about having to run into the killer one day on the streets of their city. Our uh, uh, deep concern is about uh, the, the orphans that will see the, the, murder, uh, the, murder, the murdering person in the, in the road of Quebec City uh, 25 years after, after this tragedy. Now, Bissonnette's eligible opportunity, or at least his, his chances of getting parole, are still extremely slim, whether it was to be reviewed after 25 years or 40 years or 80 years. His chances of getting parole are still very slim. Still, it's a big decision. It affects about 18 other cases, uh, those who've been sentenced since 2011 when this rule came into place from the Harper government. Uh, now, the government is reviewing the decision and argued in favor of giving judges more uh, discretion when it came to parole eligibility, which that former law did, the one that's been struck down. Uh, former Prime Minister Harper called it a grave injustice. Conservative MP and leadership candidate Pierre Polièvre vowed to invoke the nonwithstanding clause to put the rule back in place. So. Let's get the politics out of this because it always kind of ruins the conversation. Let's try to understand what the court decided and why, and really what the impact of this is actually going to be. To do that is Isabel Grant. She's a professor at the Peter Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia, and she joins me now. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. This is always such a delicate issue, uh, often because it involves the most horrific of crimes. What is proper punishment, quote unquote? Uh, the Supreme Court though today was unanimous. It cannot be a de facto life sentence with no chance of ever getting out. Uh, why was that? Well, I think it's important to understand what the Supreme Court said and what they didn't say. Mr. Bissonnette was sentenced to a mandatory life sentence for murder. That has not changed. The only question is, at what point in that life sentence will he be allowed to seek parole? That doesn't mean get parole. It means apply for parole. And what the Supreme Court of Canada said is if you delay that to the point where there is no possibility of release, that you are taking away all hope and dignity from him while he is incarcerated, and that that is cruel and unusual punishment. What they didn't say is that he should be released at any particular time. They didn't reduce his sentence. It's still a mandatory life sentence. Um, but what they said is you cannot take away even the possibility of release for someone who is able to rehabilitate themselves while while incarcerated. Um, the 2011 change to the rules that was brought in by the Harper government uh, at the time was meant to be quote unquote tough on crime, uh, but it did it. What exactly did it allow judges to do that the Supreme Court today has said uh, violates the charter? So prior to these changes, if you were convicted of first degree murder, you would receive a mandatory life sentence with 25 years before you could even, again, apply for parole. doesn't mean you'll get it after 25 years. It means you can ask for it. 
for second degree murder, um, the judge would set that period of time somewhere between 10 and 25 years. What the conservative government did under um, then Prime Minister Harper was say that if you commit more than one murder, you're convicted of more than one murder, judges could add those periods of parole and eligibility together. So they could, it would not be 25 years, hypothetically, it could be 50 years or 75 years or even 150 years in, in Mr. Bissonnette's case. And so what that means is for someone who is a young to middle-aged adult that there would be no possibility that they would ever be able to apply for parole. And that was the change. The court says now the law stands as it did prior to 2011 that someone convicted of first-degree murder can apply for parole after 25 years. Now, this is not a particularly, if I understand correctly, within, say, uh, civil law, this is not a particularly lenient uh, sentence, a 25-year, you know, a 25-year eligible, you know, having to wait 25 years to be eligible. It's not lenient at all if you look at it in comparative terms to other jurisdictions. There are some American states that have life without parole and some that have the death penalty. Obviously, those two regimes are harsher. But, but most European countries, for example, or that use a common law system, um, Canada is one of the harshest. And I, I just might say, too, that um, you know, a colleague and I did a study recently that showed that um, you know, Indigenous people, for example, are, have a much harder time getting parole than other people. And those periods of time before parole have gradually just gone up and up and up over the past 30 years. So the Harper government was responding to something that wasn't really a problem. The other point that's interesting to note is that people who are paroled after being convicted of murder are less likely to reoffend than people convicted of most violent crimes. There just isn't a history in Canada of a real problem of people who've been convicted of murder being released and then reoffending violently. This does apply, I gather, retroactively. So there are others um, who will be able to uh, look to this decision, at least to try to ask for changes. But that's all you mentioned. That's also not automatic. So if you are still what's called in the system, that means you haven't used up all your appeals and you still have time to appeal. You can you can seek relief under this judgment somewhat automatically for people who have exhausted their appeals or they've run out of time on their appeals. The court suggests that they are going to have to apply to a court under the charter, under the remedies provision of the charter, and ask for relief. It's not clear whether that's automatic, whether everyone will get it. It's, it's unfortunate, I think, that we put people in the position of, sort of, first of all, knowing about this judgment, having lawyers that they can reach out to, having resources to be able to do that. So I do think... Um, this is something the government should give some attention to about how are we going to deal? How are we going to deal with people who are now serving sentences that the court has said are cruel and unusual? For all those, and, and there will always be. I mean, when you look at the crimes that this applies to, and they are rare. Obviously, this is not this uh, stacking, so to speak, of these of these uh, eligibility for parole is not a common occurrence. But for those who, who are outraged by not being able to deliver more severe punishment to those who've committed what we would consider to be more heinous crimes, uh, what do you tell them in terms of how the law works or how the charter works? 
I mean, I guess I would say a couple of things. I don't think people should be worried in the sense by this decision that somehow the public is endangered by it. People are still sentenced to mandatory life imprisonment, and if the parole board is concerned that people are not safe to get parole after 25 years, then they will not be paroled. And the parole board in Canada, um, it's not easy to get parole when you've been convicted of murder. So I, I don't think the public's at risk in that respect. I think when you think about what the court has said here is that all we're asking is, all the court is asking is to give people in that situation a tiny light of hope, a glimmer of hope, if you will. We used to have a faint hope clause up until the Harper government where people convicted of more than, sentenced to more than 15 years without parole could apply to a jury after 15 years and say, you know, reconsider it. You know, I've rehabilitated myself. And what that does is it gives people an incentive to behave while they are in prison. It gives people, it protects um, prison employees if people have an incentive. So I, I think that, that it's an important decision and one that needs to be looked at in the, in the broader context of what the court has done. They haven't done something really radical. Um, the Harper legislation was extraordinarily punitive and unparalleled in any of the jurisdictions that we normally like to compare ourselves to. So um, I don't think we should overstate the significance of the decision in terms of what it's going to mean to the public. I'm speaking to Isabel Grant, professor at the Peter Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia. We're discussing a Supreme Court uh, ruling today, a unanimous ruling, striking down uh, a 2011 change to the rules when it came to sentencing for multiple murders, in which case uh, those sentenced to life in prison uh, for multiple murders were then uh, not given the opportunity to apply for parole within the 25 years that had been, or after 25 years, which had been the previous uh, rule. But these were then stacked now so that someone who had committed multiple murders would then have to wait 25 years times whatever uh, to be eligible for parole. That was struck down today. And it, of course, was in the case of Alexandre Bissonnette, uh, the man responsible for six deaths, uh, shooting deaths at the Quebec City Mosque in 2017. And when we come back, we'll talk a bit more about what the reaction could be, because certainly we've seen a lot of political reaction to this today uh, and see what next steps might look like. That's after this. I'm speaking with Isabel Grant, professor at the Peter Allard School of Law at the University of British Columbia. We're discussing a Supreme Court uh, ruling today, a unanimous uh, ruling uh, striking down uh, a rule that had been brought in in 2011 by the Harper government that allowed judges to stack uh, parole eligibility for multiple murders. So after giving a receiving a 25-year, a life sentence, 25 years, or a life sentence, rather, you'd be eligible for parole, not after 25 years, as the old ruling said, but perhaps much longer. And that today was found to be a violation of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Uh, Isabel, one, one of the, uh, Professor Grant, one of the, uh, uh, one of the ideas put forth today was to use the notwithstanding clause, Pierre Polyev said it today, uh, to try and change this ruling. Is that worth it? Is that even something that could be considered? I mean, I, I can't say whether politically that would be successful or not. I would be surprised if this were the federal government's first use of the notwithstanding clause. It's really important to remember that everybody convicted of, in this case, first-degree murder, has a mandatory life sentence. The Supreme Court of Canada did not touch that. So the parole board is fully within its powers to keep someone detained for the rest of their natural life if they decide that that is necessary. So... To me, it would be a puzzling first use of the notwithstanding clause, but 
that's really more a political question than a legal question. So it's difficult for me to answer that. Certainly in these cases, the politics and the law always collide. Uh, it does go to the very heart, though, of what parole is meant to be um, uh, within our legal system. And, and clearly what the justices said today, and unanimous decision is always worth noting, uh, they've essentially upheld the idea that that prison in this country is still meant to at least even in the worst cases and with the faintest hopes, as you mentioned earlier, have some rehabilitative notion. Yeah, and I think that's important. And when you take away even the possibility of parole, you take away any incentive for someone to try to pull their life together while incarcerated. And and I think that's really important that you you give that glimmer of hope in a way that like they've done today, that doesn't necessarily endanger the public at all. We're not saying release people and we'll see if they can rehabilitate themselves. We're saying give people the opportunity to rehabilitate themselves while incarcerated. One of the cases, I mean, when you think about what the implications of this decision are, um, Justin Bork, who was a 24-year-old man um, who killed three RCMP officers in, in, um, New Brunswick, was sentenced to 75 years of parole and eligibility. So under the previous law, he would have been eligible for parole when he turned 99. So when you think about what that means to someone at 24 to say there is no chance that you can pull your life together um, and maybe make something remotely um, positive out of it. And now presumably Mr. Bork could reapply to a court and all the court would say is, yes, we, we will treat your sentence as life without eligibility for parole. Um, for 25 years, they wouldn't be saying, you know, contemplating releasing Mr. Bork. So I just think it's really important to keep in mind the scope of this judgment. For, for, for the non, for those who are not in the legal profession, though, there is always this idea that there are some crimes that are so awful that there really should be an option to lock someone up and throw away the key. And it, it you, you get the sense, and you know, understanding, of course, the, the confines of the charter. But one understands that in this, in these cases, like the Justin Bork case or uh, the case of Mr. Bissonnette, that there were many out there who thought that there was no rehabilitation here, that the, the really this should be lock them up and throw away the key. Um, but our legal system isn't built for that, is it? I mean, that's not the way the charter works. Well, it's also just not the way sentencing works. Hmm. Um, keeping people incarcerated, yes, it, it extends the punishment, that's right, but it's not in a very it's not a very efficient tool for doing that. It creates dangers to people in those situations. It's extraordinarily expensive um, to keep someone, particularly people who are growing old, um, incarcerated. The costs of providing medical care and various other things um, can be hugely expensive for, for taxpayers. So I think, you know, I think it's important that the court's keep a glimmer of rehabilitation in the context of their sentences. And I think they've done that here. Isabel Grant, thank you so much for your insight on this. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.